Marissa Lee here, and I'm so excited to be sharing today's interview round episode with you. In these episodes, our brilliant lineup of guests will include healthcare practitioners, voice educators, and other professionals who will share their stories, knowledge, and experiences within their specialized fields to empower you to live your best life. Whether you're a member of the voice community or beyond, your voice is your unique gift. It's time now to share your gift with others, develop a positive mindset and become the best and most authentic version of yourself to create greater impact. Ultimately, you can take charge. It's time for you to live your best life. It's time now for A Voice and Beyond. So, without further ado, let's go to today's episode. Have you ever wondered about the impacts on phonation for those who suffer from Parkinson's disease? In this episode, we speak with Valeria Gary, who is a health coach and a speech-language pathologist working within the healthcare industry. In 2015, Valeria transitioned her career as an SLP to providing therapy to patients with Parkinson's disease and works as a volunteer for the Parkinson's Foundation in Georgia and is owner of Total Body Cognition and Southeast Parkinson's Speech Services. Currently, there are approximately 10 million people worldwide suffering from Parkinson's disease. And in our conversation, Valeria explains that Parkinson's disease is a neurodegenerative disease, which means that it impacts the brain and the patient gradually worsens over time. She tells us that at this time, there are no known causes or cures for Parkinson's disease. However, with the correct medications and support, patients can maintain a good quality of life. Parkinson's disease not only impacts the body, but Valeria talks about the many ways it can affect phonation such as patients experiencing reduced volume, monotone pitch, and breathiness or hoarseness in the voice. She stresses that early intervention is most beneficial for the patient as it is easier to maintain function than to regain some. Valeria describes her clinical work she does with her patients demonstrate some of the vocal exercises she uses along with their desired outcomes and how we as a voice community can create inclusive spaces for Parkinson's patients to enjoy and reap the benefits of singing. This is a most informative and very important episode for all of us to learn more about this terrible disease. So, Without further ado, let's go to today's episode. Welcome to A Voice and Beyond, Valeria Gary. It is 
such a pleasure to have you here. How are you? I'm doing quite well. I'm glad to be here. Yes, you know, we're going to talk about something that is very deeply personal to me. You know, I'm a bit selfish when it comes to the podcast at times, and I choose my guests based on things that I've experienced in my life and and that I'm fascinated to learn more about. And today it's about Parkinson's disease. And my father suffered from Parkinson's disease back in the 70s and going into the 80s. And I saw that deterioration and I've seen firsthand what it can do with people who suffer from this terrible disease. So Valeria, you are a health coach, a speech language pathologist working in the healthcare industry. Your specialization is working with Parkinson's disease patients and you also volunteer for the Parkinson's Foundation in Georgia. You're from Atlanta, and you're the owner of Total Body Cognition and Southeast Parkinson's Speech Services. Wow. So I'm fascinated to learn so much more about you and about your work, but maybe can we just start with your background And what inspired you to go into the health field first up? (laughs) That's not a really fancy story. It was an extremely random decision that I made when I was in high school. Um, It was time for us to like decide what we're going to do after high school. And my guidance counselor just kind of basically handed me this book of careers that said, find your dream. And um, initially I wanted to do uh, speech broadcasting. I wanted to be on the news. And then when I looked at the book, it said you had the major speech communications. And then it talked about how hard it was to get a job in that field. And I was like, well, I don't want to work that hard to get a job. So alphabetically, the very next thing says speech pathology and said, oh, there are great opportunities for this field. So I was like, that's what I'm going to be. So that's how I ended up in healthcare. Okay. So from a TV presenter to being an SLP. Okay. <laughs> Almost 33 years now. So I wow. guess it was a good decision. Okay. And then at what stage of your career did you embark on working with uh, Parkinson's disease patients? Was it something you fell into serendipitously or something that you thought, wow, no, I I really love this field? It'll be the second. So that was an actual formal decision that I made. I've worked with people with Parkinson's throughout my career, but not um, as a specialization until 2015. When I started working where I am now in an outpatient neurorehabilitation clinic, and we've got a, a Parkinson's program there. At that time, it was very new. And so I was really enjoying um, the work that I was doing. And then the Parkinson Foundation had a training called Allied Team Training for Parkinson's. And that was like a, a three or four day intensive uh, program, multidisciplinary. So, yeah, there were movement disorder specialists there people in the rehab community, social workers, there was a sex therapist, and we all just kind of got together and learned about Parkinson's. And it it got me out of my little box of speech pathology, sitting across the table, having someone, you know, make sounds. And that's what really got me, you know, interested and specializing more and just wanted to learn as much as I can and treat people kind of more holistically instead of just the the speech and the voice. Well, that's incredible that, that you have so many people from different areas coming together to work with those patients. And so what kind so what kind of training did you have to do then to specialize with Parkinson's disease patients or were you well equipped already to work with those people? Well, I did um training for LSVT, which is Lee Silverman Voice Therapy. That's a program 
for speech and voice developed specifically for people with Parkinson's. It works for beyond Parkinson's, but that's the, the initial intent. Um, and then from there, I was doing that a lot. And then I got training through Parkinson Voice Project Speak Out program. So the trainings, um, you know, they're intensive programs, but it was mostly kind of like the hands-on experience and then just being involved with the Parkinson's community, uh, um, volunteering is where I probably learned more about that. Uh, then I ended up starting a support group of my job, PD Life, and just you know, hearing the personal stories and seeing people kind of you know go through the progression of the condition. Again, that kind of added the most to my education for Parkinson's too. Yes. And let's get to the actual disease itself, because a lot of people may not know a lot about the disease and the deterioration that occurs within the patient. And I think the biggest, probably what would you call it, the time that a lot of awareness was drawn to Parkinson's disease was with Michael J. Fox. Right. Mm -hmm. He has raised so much awareness, but still I'm sure there's a lot of people that don't understand what the disease is. So can you describe it for us, please, Valeria? Yes, and you're right. A lot of people don't know about it. Um, Although there's there are quite a few people that have Parkinson's disease. So there are about one million people in the U.S. right now with Parkinson's. And that number is expected to increase in the next few years to, I want to say, 1.2 million people. Really? Is there a reason for that? As our population ages. So there's a correlation between aging and Parkinson's disease. So our population will have more of our baby boomers getting older. And so that's going to increase the, the likelihood of, of Parkinson's disease. Worldwide, there are about 10 million people worldwide with Parkinson's disease. And yet still, it's, it's a somewhat unknown condition. If someone doesn't have a personal experience with it, a lot of times people don't really know much about it. But it is what we call a neurodegenerative condition. So neuro involving the brain and degenerative, meaning that things progressively get worse. Um, it's a condition that affects the cells that create a chemical called dopamine in the brain. And there's a specific area in the brain, the substantia nigra, where this occurs. If you want to go deep into finding out more about Parkinson's, the um, Parkinson Foundation website, uh, Michael J. Fox Foundation website, all of the, the major organizations have a lot of information about you know, kind of like what it is and how it affects the body. Now, as far as causes, that's something we still don't know. There are a lot of studies being done. Uh, for example, the Parkinson Foundation is doing something called PD generation. So that's G-E-N-E eration. And they're collecting um, saliva samples from people and is really studying the DNA to see like, you know, what, what are some factors that come into play with Parkinson's? We know sometimes there's a genetic factor with Parkinson's um, and then there's also some potential environmental things. And sometimes it's kind of a perfect storm of a variety of things. And sometimes we don't know why someone has Parkinson's. So we haven't nailed down an exact, like, this is why uh, people have it. And even diagnosing it is kind of like um, a lot of times it's eliminating other things. So people get tested you know, they'll do an MRI to look at the brain and see if there's like strokes involved. They'll look at the medications. There's a, a test called a DAT scan that's looking at the brain. And a lot of times the doctors will use that to determine, like, can't say definitively, but that, you know, looking at the results of that and looking at that scan will let them say, yeah, that what we believe that this is what you have is Parkinson's. But a lot of it is just looking at all those different symptoms and kind of piecing that puzzle together. So can it be misdiagnosed? Yes, it can. So. I would say it's probably quite underdiagnosed. So sometimes uh, people might just think they have an essential tremor. An essential tremor is when someone has uncontrolled tremors, for example, in the hands. Um, Other people might get dismissed as, okay, you're getting older, or if someone's had a history of strokes, that someone might just assume that's part of their stroke. 
And I've seen a lot of patients have to go through a lot of testing in order to get definitively diagnosed, because again, it's kind of like we rule a lot of things out and we put every, all these pieces together. So if you have someone that has that either been able to be persistent to get the diagnosis or don't have access to healthcare to keep going and getting one test after another test after another, that's a large number of people who are probably missing the diagnosis because it, it does take a while sometimes. I'll hear people say, well, you know, when I look back, I've had Parkinson's probably for about five years, but I was just diagnosed last year. Wow. Wow. And what are some of those early signs of Parkinson's? Is there a particular part of the body that is attacked first? It varies. Uh, There's a saying, if you've met one person with Parkinson's, you've met one person because everyone can experience it differently. But but if we're looking at some of the big signs, like the hallmark things, tremor, which is going to be, again, kind of that shaking, uh, is one of the first things people think about with Parkinson's. But not everybody with Parkinson's uh, necessarily has tremors, especially early on. Some people notice that things are getting smaller, like their handwriting is getting smaller. Or when they're walking, they're shuffling a little bit. Those steps are getting smaller. Some people notice constipation because that digestive process is moving uh, more slowly. The voice itself might get softer in those earlier stages. And then we have balance problems that some people might have. Some people don't have that until later stages. But those are some of the kind of the red flags when it comes to what we call motor symptoms of Parkinson's. And then we have the non-motor symptoms. And one of the ones I hear the most about is um, acting out dreams. So when people are sleeping, they're crashing about. Usually the person doesn't know it themselves, but it's their spouse is saying, wow, you know, you're like really like almost knocking me out of the bed. That's one of those early um, signs that people might notice. Another thing, um, apathy. So just kind of like just not really having that get up and go can be an early sign of Parkinson's also. And then hypotension. So that orthostatic hypotension, standing up and getting real woozy, uh, unstanding. And and there are other symptoms too, but those are some of the the common early signs of Parkinson's. With my father, it started with a a hand tremor. Mm -hmm. As far as we know, he may have had other signs now that you're describing all those symptoms, but he started with a hand tremor and he, he was shuffling later on. And I remember walking down the street with him. Once he started walking, he could keep walking and walking and walking. But if he had to stop to cross the road, for him to get moving again, that was a big effort. And sometimes he would end up falling because his upper body had sort of leaned forward into walking, but his feet hadn't moved. And I remember people looking at him as though he was drunk or there was something wrong with him. It was so, so sad. But what is the progression that most people are likely to go through? That's hard to say because that's really individual. And the thing to remember is that Parkinson's itself is not a fatal disease. So people don't die of Parkinson's, they die with Parkinson's. And some um, a person can have Parkinson's for a very long time and progress very slowly and some people might progress uh, more quickly. Mm -hmm. Yes, because I know my father didn't pass from Parkinson's. As you just said, he passed, he ended up um, having multiple myeloma and had Parkinson's alongside of that. With medications and with treatment, can people live a normal life with Parkinson's disease these days? 
Yes, um, to a degree. So one of the things that we know is that one of the best things for someone with Parkinson's to do is to get a lot of good, vigorous exercise, because that does help to delay the progression or slow the progression of the disease. Vigorous exercise, so getting the heart rate up, so really exercising. Uh, and you'll, you might start to notice that there are more and more boxing gyms and boxing programs for people with Parkinson's and other exercise programs. So if someone is diagnosed early on and they start exercising regularly and again, you know, doing a vigorous exercise, that does help them to, to maintain some good quality of life. Now, other things um, that are, you know, medications also help. Uh, there are the kind of the standard medication is going to be the Cinemet, the Carvedova Lipidopa. That is a medication that has, um, you know, again, you will see most commonly with Parkinson's, but there are also some newer medications out there to help people to have the effects of the medication last a little bit longer. Meaning that with the medication, people have what's called on times and off times. So on time, the medication is working. Maybe that rigidity that they normally experience is better. And then as the medication starts to fade in their system, things kind of come crashing down and they become very rigid or they have more difficulty with walking, more difficulty with talking or swallowing. Um, so there's some medications that help people to you know, keep the medication in their system and, and not have those big ups and downs. Um, so that helps with quality of life. You know, having you know, family support um, is significant. Seeing your know, physical occupational speech therapy is significant for maintaining a good quality of life because there are adaptive equipment things that someone might benefit from. So, for example, if it takes them a long time to get dressed because of difficulty with fine motor control, an occupational therapist can either show them some ways to be more efficient with getting dressed or show them some gadgets that they can use to help with that. And do people have surgery? Is that a thing? Because I think, did Michael J. Fox have surgery? Yeah, so um, deep brain stimulation is a surgery um, that can be beneficial for some people with Parkinson's. Okay, but not not all. Not all. So um, what happens often is when someone's on the Parkinson's medication for an extended period of time, they develop something called dyskinesias. And so that's going to be a lot of excessive movement that is hard for them to control. And so deep brain stimulation helps with that because if someone has uncontrolled movements, it's going to make it harder to do things like you know, standing up, sitting down, walking. But if someone has, for example, some like cognitive problems beforehand, they might not be a good candidate for that, that surgery because it can make those cognitive problems worse. If someone has you know, certain conditions, so it's not for everyone, but yes, but there's a, works wonders for people that are appropriate for it. Now let's go into your work in terms of speech-related problems. At what point of time do we usually start to see a degeneration of speech or is that once again a case-by-case thing? It's kind of case-by-case, but the softer voice can happen um, early on and people won't necessarily notice it. Um, With Parkinson's, uh, it affects what we call kind of like a feedback loop in our brain. So when we hear ourselves, we're able to tell if we're speaking softly, if we're speaking with a loud voice. Parkinson's affects that. And so people will hear themselves speaking much more loudly than they actually are. So, you know, a lot of times people come to me um, for their initial evaluation and I'll say, okay, tell me why you're here for a speech evaluation. And they'll say, my wife can't hear me, but she's hard of hearing. Or they say I'm not loud enough, but I I feel like I am loud enough. Right. Yes. And that can happen um, early on. Uh, From a therapy standpoint, we love to see people when they're first diagnosed so even if we don't keep them in therapy for a long time, because we want to get them in to learn the exercises that they can learn to, to keep um, those functions going you know, for as long as possible. Usually, though, the patients that come to us are going to be probably more moderate stages, uh, which is unfortunate. 
we're trying to raise awareness with the physicians, with the you know, neurologists about the benefits of early intervention with rehab. But oftentimes it's not until someone is having significant problems and they mention it to their doctor that we get that referral. And it's never too, it was generally never too late for us to have an impact. It's just easier to maintain a function than it is to try to regain some. But we can, we, we can regain some function. Yes. So other than just that soft voice, is that the only impact that it has on phonation or does it impact on phonation in other ways as well? So that's kind of the hallmark. Now with um, Parkinson's, often people have what's called bowing of the vocal cords. So instead of the vocal cords kind of coming together, close contact, there's a little bit of opening. There's a gap in that space. Yes. And so we have that gap. We're going to lose some of the, the voice quality. We're going to lose some of the loudness. We're going to have some breathiness with the voice. The other things of not that can affect with, uh, with Parkinson's is the intonation. So that the highs and lows of the pitch. When I mentioned before, you know, Parkinson's kind of makes things smaller, like handwriting and step. The same thing can happen with the vocal tract and with the mouth. So the mouth move, movements can get smaller. The range of the voice can get smaller. And so unchecked, a person's voice could sound like, like a very kind of mumbly, flat, monotone speech. That was my dad. Mm-hmm. Right. And so in therapy, the exercise we do, we're trying to you know, keep the flexibility of the vocal cords, get some good closure to get good sound and to have that, you know, that the highs and lows of speech so that the voice doesn't sound monotone, you know, getting the mouth movement so it doesn't sound like mumbling. Yes. So they come to you. How do you work out the treatment plan from that first visit? Yeah. So we do kind of a standard evaluation. So I'm going to look at a lot of the different areas. I'm going to look at with, when it comes to voice, like how long, for example, can they hold out a vowel sound? Like what's that breath support look like? Um, while they're doing those ahs and holding them out, I'm looking like, what's the breathing pattern? Do I see shoulder hiking every time they take a breath? What's the posture like? You know, because these are things we might have to address in therapy if there's um, some difficulties with those. Mm-hmm. Um, I look at the flexibility. We're doing some glides, gliding up, gliding down. Articulation, like reading a standard reading passage, having conversation and looking at like how clear is your speech? How does the voice sound within the context of speech? Language, how well are they able to get the words out that they want to express? How well can they follow the directions or follow the conversation that we're having? I'll kind of do a little bit of a screen of memory because again, if someone has a lot of difficulty with memory, that's going to change how I'm going to address their therapy as opposed to someone without difficulty with memory. No difficulty with memory. I'm going to teach you some exercises. I'm going to watch you do them. We'll do a few sessions and maybe you're on your way. If you have difficulty following directions or remembering things, I'm going to have to work on that and, and tailor those exercises and make sure you've got some support outside of therapy as part of the, the rehab program. And then I'll ask about swallow. We've got to always evaluate swallowing when someone comes in, but I'll at least ask, you know, um, about if there's you know, coughing, choking, reflux, any of those type of things, things getting stuck in the throat during meals. And if so, then we'll want to take a look at that too. Mm -hmm. Does it affect the breathing mechanism, like the lung capacity, that kind of thing? Yes. And so that's one of the reasons why when we're looking at like that vowel prolongation, we're looking at how much air can someone get in and out uh, for speech, because if someone can't get much air in and out, they're not going to get very many words out per breath. And if they're trying to use, you know, get out the same number of words per breath that they used to, they're running out of air in the middle of the sentence, but their mouth keeps going and then you can't hear what they're saying. From a swallowing standpoint, changes um, with that can affect 
uh, the swallowing safety. So if something goes down the wrong way, normally we cough and hopefully we cough hard enough to get that out. Someone with Parkinson's may have difficulty having that forceful cough. So in therapy, there's something we do called expiratory muscle strength training, where we're working on the muscles for exhalation to get to be able to get a more vigorous cough to eject things that went down the wrong way. And there could be some benefit to uh, from a communication standpoint, anytime we're working the, the breathing muscles. Yes. So give us examples of some of the exercises that you would do with a patient. Let's just say someone comes to you just to try and increase maybe their the volume of their speech, for example. Yes. So um, one of the ones might be holding out an ah sound. So you're making sure the posture is as, as good as possible for that patient. Taking a breath and holding out, like for example, Ah, and we're holding that out um, perhaps for as long as they can or for a certain number of seconds. Um, doing that, it helps with working the loudness. It helps with the, uh, the respiratory muscles that we're working on. Cueing them to open their mouth wide because a, a wide open mouth is going to have a louder production than a mouth that's clenched. So there are a lot of different things we can work with that. Uh, we might do some glides, so going from, like, from a low note to a high note. Ah, we do it all that with a loud voice, and then be coming back down. Ah, or we might go from middle voice to low. Ah, so all that to work the flexibility of the muscles, and we're doing it all, you know, wide open mouth with vigor. Um, then we might do some talking. Uh, again, with a certain uh, level of loudness that we're looking for, well, we'll use a, a sound um, pressure level meter to measure sound. So we'll set a target for that patient. Say, so, okay, as you read these words or these sentences or you tell this story, you've got to stay above this particular target. And what we're trying to do is teach someone what it feels like to be loud enough. Because again, it can't go by what they hear, but you know, what does it feel like when you, you're producing enough volume? Or with um, Speak Out's program, the word keyword is intent. So saying each word with intent, making sure that each word is heard and understood. That also helps to slow down the rate, move the mouth more and get that louder voice out. So it sounds like to me, a lot of the work that we do as singing teachers, except you're not worried about the beauty of sound. It's more about getting the sound out whereas we want the sound to sound a little bit beautiful because it's singing we need beauty of tone but a lot of those exercises that you were showing me were things that we possibly would do with our patient uh, with our patients with our clients or our students I'm just wondering whether having a singing teacher on staff would also be beneficial well, music therapy, yes, is um, we've had a music therapy therapist company come into our Parkinson support group and do some things. And it was fantastic. But it's funny you mentioned as far as the similarity. So that is actually a barrier sometimes for voice therapy with people with Parkinson's because people hear those glides and they think singing. Then they become reserved and like, oh, I don't want to do that loud because I, quote unquote, can't sing. Oh, and we're not singing. We're exercising muscles. We're, it's not an opera. It's an exercise. Wow. So then that fear of being judged comes yes. into play. They're fearful thinking, you know, I have to execute this with, with a beautiful sound. And they start to worry about the aesthetics of the sound rather than just getting the sound out. Yes. And so we're always encouraged, like, okay, we just want that loudness. And it doesn't matter how it sounds. This is not an audition. This is like an aerobics class, you know, so I'll try to correlate it to 
taking an aerobics class versus being the uh, the prima ballerina in a, a show. Like we're not trying to be the prima ballerina show when we go to aerobics. We're just trying to sweat and we're moving however we move. So it's the same thing. We're moving these vocal cords however they move. We're not auditioning to be in an opera. Or to be in Hamilton or whatever. (laughs) Okay. So what is your principal aim or objective with your patients? Or is that once again, case by case? Well, um, increasing the awareness of how they're not as loud as they think they are. That takes a good bit of time. Because again, when someone's listening, you know, inside of their, when they hear it in their head, it's always somebody else's problem, not theirs, because, you know, they feel like I, I hear just myself just fine. Or they're thinking about the, they're, they're using their normal effort. And so that normal effort is just not getting them the loudness that it got before. So I have to a lot of times use some visual feedback to let them see the decibel meter. I'm talking and it's here at one level. They're talking and it's at another level uh, just for them to see like, oh, wow, how'd you get that? decibel meter up to that number and I can't get it there. And it's like, well, because I'm projecting my voice more. But that, that awareness does take some some time. So when you say time, are we talking weeks or months? It depends. Um, but uh, a typical program is going to be about a month long when we're doing like the more intensive um, program. So we're seeing them for a month. Um, some people are not, are still not as aware. They still need that reminder um, after that month's time to, uh, for the loudness. But at least with the therapy, if they don't remember on their own or they don't recognize on their own, if they hear the cues, say it louder, they know what to do. They know, oh, okay, I've got to like, you know, take this breath and project my voice some more. Yes. How often do your patients come to you? What does the treatment plan look like in terms of intensity and consistency? So if they're doing um, LSVT, the least element voice therapy, typically that's four times a week for four weeks. It can be extended to be um, what's called LSVTX, which is two times a week for eight weeks. So both of those are 16 visits. They're one hour length for each visit. Then after that, there's the opportunity um, to do, like, for example, like monthly maintenance type um, exercise, like group exercise. It's not therapy, but it's like a group exercise uh, program called Loud for Life. Sorry, the, the, those first two that you, you spoke about, they're one on one. Yes, those are one-on-one individual sessions, yes. Mm-hmm. And then once they complete that, um, LSVT has something called Loud for Life that uh, where someone can do um, like a group-type class. It's not a ins- billing insurance type of thing. It's a basically like a group exercise class to maintain those skills. And then it's supposed to be that the exercises are done daily, even after finishing therapy. So it's, it's a lifelong um, you know, process to keep that, the vocal function. Now with um, Speak Out, that's the Parkinson Voice Project. That's typically three times a week for four weeks, so 12 visits that are about um, 40 to 45 minutes. They do those exercises also online. So some people can maybe just come to the clinic two times a week and then do the exercises online the other days. And uh, with Speak Out, there's um, something called Loud Crowd, and that's their version of the after you finish therapy carryover exercises uh, to kind of maintain that function, uh, group exercise. And I said monthly um, for, for both of those, but that's just the places I've worked um, have had monthly, but some places might have it more frequently. But so it might be some places might have it every week or every other week. It just depends on the location. Mm-hmm. What age would be the youngest patient that you've worked with? My youngest patient has been in, the, in their late 40s. Yeah, so some people do have what's called early onset Parkinson's. And so that's going to be if they get it before the age of 50. Wow. Okay, that would be 
very traumatic and very heartbreaking, I suppose, for someone so young. Right. Yes, that is. A, um, now, their life expectancy is quite good. Um, people with young onset Parkinson's. So they, they tend to have a slower progression of the, of the disease and they have, they have a good life expectancy. Yes. And with Parkinson's disease, do you find that people may end up with other problems because they're living with this terrible disease? Like, do you see people suffering with depression and anxiety? Yeah, depression, anxiety, apathy, those are um, also part of the, the package of symptoms of Parkinson's disease. And, and also um, changes in cognition um, can, can occur. Okay, I read somewhere that it can bring on dementia. Is that correct? Yes, for some people, yes. Um, so dementia, uh, and there's an association with um, Lewy body dementia for some people. And I don't know the actual statistics of it, but that's usually kind of later in the progression. And kind of going back to the people with early onset, they're less likely to progress into dementia also um, when someone has it earlier. Uh, in Australia, there was a program, there was a choral program that I, I think it was a research program where they had choirs set up for Parkinson's disease patients. I'm, I'm not sure of the outcome of the research or why they did the research, but I would imagine it's to see if there was any benefit for the patient in terms of improvement of speech. Do you know of anything like that? Yes. And I can't quote the studies, but I have read studies that have looked at singing and Parkinson's and there have been some good outcomes because as you mentioned, those exercises are similar um, to what we do in therapy. I've had people ask me like, well, can I just do a Parkinson's choir instead of doing my, my, my speech therapy exercises? And I would say, well, you know, you should definitely do the Parkinson's choir because there's so many benefits to being in a group and to singing and, and enjoy with that. It doesn't completely replace the speech exercises because those exercises have been studied as far as like the number of repetitions that are done, the intensity that are, that's done, the outcomes data that we have is based on doing those things repeatedly. Um, like in singing, you might glide up just a few times in a song, but when you're doing your exercises, you might be do, you're doing them like 10 times in a row. So there's a difference uh, between that. Yes, yes. And I imagine, too, the mental and emotional health benefits of being in a choir, being in working, uh, being a part of a group and that feeling of being a part of a community, the confidence and the happiness and the joy that it would bring people. Absolutely. Uh, and even like now with, um, with COVID, some of those groups are, are virtual instead of being in person. And there have been, you know, it's been beneficial. I know the Parkinson Voice Project had um, recently had a, a singing, I, I want to say sing with PD, but I might be calling it the wrong thing. But they would send everyone like, um, like the lyrics of the song and the music and they had everyone record their own version. They put it all together into like this choir presentation. And there are other uh, organizations like local ones that have choirs that have uh, virtual programs. Mm -hmm. So have you seen the field progressing over the years? even the work that you're doing and the, the field in general? Absolutely. We know so much more. And I know you mentioned it was in the 70s and 80s when your father had Parkinson's. And I'm thinking how much more we know about Parkinson's and how much more we're doing for people with Parkinson's since that time. You know, when I first started in the field, um, someone had Parkinson's, we would basically get what's called a pacing board. It was just like this wood board with some grooves in it. And we would tell them to touch each block with every word. Because I mentioned how the, the voice with the speech would be kind of mumbly. That was our way of, of like stopping someone from mumbling. 
is to talk like this and touch the square as you talk. No. Yes, that's what we learned to do. And that's all we knew how to do. And of course, nobody walked around with these square blocks in their hands um, to touch, nor did anyone want to talk that way. So yes, we've come a very long way. So do you find that with the patients that they can speak quite normally? Do they go back to a place where they almost have normal function? From a speech standpoint, yes. Um, and sometimes uh, when I do an evaluation and you know, first I'll test people without telling them what I want them to do. I'll just say like, you know, hold up this ah sound or, or read this passage or say these words. Then I'll go back and I'll, I'll, I'll show them how I want them to do it. And a lot of times, you know, like their care partner, spouse, who is with them, they're always like, whoa, that's, that's amazing. Like, I haven't heard that voice in so long. Like, that sounds like my husband. That sounds like my wife. Because it's in there. It's just, the, you know, kind of bringing that out. Yes. Do you do a recording like a before and after? Yes. Mm-hmm. And then people hear it. would be amazing. That would be amazing. It is. Um, and sometimes people aren't sure if they've made progress. And then we listen to that initial recording where they were mumbling and their voice is real soft, they were real monotone. And they're like, wow, that I have made progress. Uh, sometimes it's hard to hear your own progress unless you're faced with that, that current, you know, the before and after. Yeah. That work for you must be so rewarding that you're doing work that is truly helping people. Yes. You know, I used to always love working with people with aphasia, which is a language disorder that um, people might have after a stroke. And I still love that. Um, but that's, you know, seems like something so concrete where it's like I just I model something, someone does it and boom, like that automatic almost progress really is fascinating. Not to say that it, it goes from me just telling someone to be loud and they do it and they go on their merry way. But just you know, tapping into that and, and helping people to find that they've got all that voice inside of them. That's, now that's how Parkinson's kind of took over my, my previous uh, speech therapy passion. Yes. And does your work in with the rehabilitation program at the hospital, is that different to the work that you're doing for the Parkinson's Foundation and work that you do outside of the hospital? Yeah. So at the hospital, I do direct therapy. Um, so I'm doing evaluations and I'm doing treatment. Outside of the hospital, on my own, I do maintenance therapy. So uh, I don't even call it therapy, I call it maintenance exercises. So people might come to me after they've had therapy somewhere, but they're kind of bored with practicing on their own. And so I'll, I'll cue them to, during their, their practice. Uh, there's a Parkinson's gym. Now it's um, called the Center for Movement Challenges. So it's not just Parkinson's, but it's also multiple sclerosis uh, that has uh, boxing programs, exercise classes, et cetera. And I do a speech and voice exercise class for them. And that's a, a virtual class that we do. Mm-hmm. For the foundation, I'm on a chapter advisory uh, committee, and my role there is to expand everyone's knowledge in the community about Parkinson's and what the Parkinson Foundation can offer. I help put together programs. Of, recently, we did one for African-Americans and Parkinson's trying to raise awareness about um, the lack of resources for, for African-Americans with Parkinson's. Um, you know, a lot of times when people think of Parkinson's, they think of white males, like, you know, elderly white males. And so, you know, even doctors, sometimes that's what they're thinking of. Someone, maybe a young black female comes to them with some tremors or some complaints. They're not thinking about Parkinson's because they have this who has Parkinson's. So they they have a stereotype. Exactly. Yes. And then we look at health, you know, just kind of disadvantages that um, disparities that people face. Um, 
been, you know, we're trying to, just, again, raise awareness so that doctors are more informed. Um, we recently had a program for the LGBT um, community. And also, you know, with there, I learned a lot as far as like some of the health disparities that that community faces. And, when we, you know, at Parkinson's to that, then um, some people really struggle with a lot of things. And so, again, letting doctors know, like, these are some things to look for. And also for the community to know, like, here are some resources, here are some places you can go where you're going to get equitable treatment. So that's what we do with our committees. Again, like, spreading that awareness. So that is the main focus of that website, the, the Parkinson's Foundation and the work that you do? Right. Well, at least the committee that I'm on, there, there are quite a few um, committees, but um, the one that I'm on is um, for our, our local, um, you know, doctors, therapists, the community, churches, assisted living facilities, um, getting the word out. The Parkinson Foundation itself, yes, I'm working on a cure for Parkinson's, doing a lot of research. You know, are we close to a cure? I do not know that we're close to one, but I know that all the Parkinson's foundations are working together. I mean, like that's the goal. That's the, you know, all the globally. Well, is that a global thing? Well, I know at least like with um, the major ones um, in the U S and I, I imagine it's probably a global presence. I just know the, the ones here in the U S but yeah. Um, so some of the things they're doing, they're collaborating together. And so what are some of the resources then that are available for people? All right. So, um, there are tons of resources. There's an overwhelming amount of resources. I usually tell people to start like, and again, I'm talking, speaking to this, the Parkinson Foundation website, but the other websites have a similar thing. But look for where it says newly diagnosed. That's kind of going to be the information that you want. Just a little bit of information. You want to know what you can do to be proactive. So a lot of times I'll send people there. You don't want to read like what's going to happen to you in 30 years. You know, when you're first diagnosed, it's just, just to be here now. What do I need to do now? What, what hope is there for me now? Where can I find some exercise classes? Where can I find a specialist physician? Because a lot of times people might get diagnosed by the neurologist, but they still are going to want to see a movement disorder specialist. There's a difference. So it's a, it's a neurologist with a specialty in movement that's, uh, disorders as opposed to a general neurologist. Learning about nutrition, that's something else that's good to, to know right away. Does that make a difference? Yes. There've been some studies, you know, there's no like quote unquote Parkinson's diet, but obviously, you know, the healthier the diet, Kind of like the combination of the Mediterranean diet um, is one that you hear a good bit about. Um, the mind diet, I'm, I'm trying to remember what else is a combination of, but the Mediterranean is, is part of that. But basically, you know, you're, um, you know, lots of vegetables, your fruits, your lean proteins, you know, whole grains, the way that, you know, we all probably should be eating. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And we don't always. Right, yes. Or some never. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So the you know, the less you know, inflammation in your body, the um, the, the more managed other things are, then the, the better for uh, symptoms. Yes. And what about you stated that the dopamine levels are diminished with Parkinson's disease? Does eating foods that give you that dopamine high, like eating sugars and some of those foods that give you that fast energy release? Do they help? I don't know. I don't, I, um, it hasn't been recommended, <laughs> but I don't, I don't know how that affects people with Parkinson's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I, cause just talking about dopamine hits, I think of cocaine and, and drugs like that, that they give those high dopamine hits. Right. But that's in a brain that can produce the dopamine. And so we have a brain that cannot produce that dopamine. So I don't know 
So what happens there? Yeah. yeah. Well, we're not encouraging or endorsing that, by the way. It was just something that came to mind. So what are you up to next? Well, I am in the process of trying to follow Parkinson Voice Project's model. Their model for therapy is that they do a, a pay it forward um, model. So when people come to them for therapy, they're not charged for therapy. They don't bill any insurance. They don't bill the patient. When the patient finishes the therapy, they pay it forward for the next person's uh, therapy through donation. So I'm trying to put that together um, at a gym where I'm working. Yes. Really? And how's that going? Well, we're in a process. First, we have to get donations. So we have to get something to kind of get started. But that's that's something that we're hoping to to implement. Um, and I would imagine it'll be sometime next year before that actually happens. But that's what I'm working on right now. Do you have any goals or aspirations for the field you personally or professionally? I guess one of my goals would be for the field is for all of us to kind of make sure that we're getting outside of our speech therapy box. You know, a lot of times we learn to do table like um, therapy, sitting across a table from someone, having them to do something and just kind of that back and forth drill after drill after drill. And, you know, maybe getting more involved with like movement and like moving the whole body as, as part of our therapy, getting involved with, you know, helping people to overcome any health disparities that they have, helping them understand that the impact of nutrition um, all those things we could do within our scope of practice. We have to be careful, of course, but there's a lot of things we can do within the, the scope of practice. So, yeah, so just, you know, coming outside of our, our boxes um, to really advocate and to really, you know, give that whole body approach to, to what we're doing. Yes. And what about the singing voice community? Do you think that there's anything that we can do or learn further about that we can help to raise awareness and to give Parkinson's patients a voice? Well, I think the more opportunities you give people with Parkinson's to participate in singing, so you know, that outreach, the better. I know some singing communities are specific to like maybe you need to have a particular skill set for participating in that. But if there's something that's just open to the public, uh, directly, you know, getting into contact with people, letting them know this is a safe place to come sing. We're, we're not, you know, you're not going to have to do solos in front of anyone. You're not going to be judged. The, you know, the more opportunities that people have, then the, the better for that. Yes. And obviously that's going to, once again, have those mental and emotional health and well-being. Yes. Positives as well. Is there anything that you wanted to add to our conversation? Is there something that you feel that we we haven't included that's important? I don't see um, technology. There's a piece of technology called Speech Vive. I have not had personal experience with it, but what it is is it's a wearable device, and it detects when someone is starting to talk, and when that person starts to talk, it puts like the simulated chatter in their ear. So the person wearing the device can hear this noise. No one else cannot hear it. What happens when, if you're in a loud environment, what do you do with your voice? You talk louder, right? Yes, absolutely. Yes. So with this device, someone starts to talk, they hear this noise, and there's a tendency to talk louder. And that's um, something that's being used to help people with Parkinson's too, um, to overcome that soft voice. So I'd look at it as kind of like a prosthetic device. So we still want someone to exercise. We don't want to take away the exercise. But if someone, for example, maybe has struggles with remembering to use a loud voice, that's something that could be beneficial to them in different settings. Well, it's funny you should say that because yesterday I was in a class. I was just sitting in on a class and uh, we call them speech pathologists here in Australia. 
and he was giving a lecture and he was saying in terms of raising volume and people say, oh, I've lost my voice and I can't talk. Sometimes he will turn music, like he will turn some noise on and then ask them a question and automatically that they will raise their voice to try and get over it. Yes. I think it's called the Lombard effect. I think that's what it's called. Yes, but even some of the things that you said, like coughing, they say, oh, we can't make a sound. And you can you cough? Can you put your hands up against the wall and push that wall like, ah, you know, and right. or tricking the person into making sound? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. It's all very interesting. But Valeria, look, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate that you've come on the show and shared your wealth of information in this field. And we're going to share your links with our listeners. So if they want to learn more about Parkinson's disease, your work within the field, and even if they want to be a part of the program or give a donation perhaps for your foundation and for the work that you're doing, they can find you there. And no, wish you all the very best and thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of A Voice and Beyond. I hope you enjoyed it as now is an important time for you to invest in your own self-care, personal growth and education. Use every day as an opportunity to learn and to grow so you can show up feeling empowered and ready to live your best life. If you know someone who will also be inspired by this episode, please be sure to copy and paste the link and share it with them. Or share it on social media and use the hashtag A Voice and Beyond. I promise you, I am committed to bringing you more inspiration and conversations just like this one every week. And if you would like to help me, please rate and review this podcast and cheer me on by clicking the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts right now. I would also love to know what it is that you most enjoyed about this episode and what was your biggest takeaway. Please take care and I look forward to your company next time on the next episode of A Voice and Beyond.